0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Perhaps one of the most underrated books of the Bible. If you don't know where Jude is, go to Revelation. It's the one right before it. Okay? Uh, We are going to read the whole thing. All right? Uh, It's only one chapter. 25 verses, so it shouldn't take us long at all. This is part three of three of a series we've entitled Church 101, where we're exploring the uh, doctrine of what's called polity or order, governance of a New Testament church. We pray this has been fruitful for you. If you have missed any of uh, the sermons in this series, please do go back and listen to those. You go to fbcordial.com, You go to our Facebook page. If you have a podcasting app, you can listen to them on there, but please do make sure you listen to all three of these um, next week, we'll be back in Luke, all right? So we'll jump back into Luke chapter 10. So make sure you bring your scripture journals for that. Now imagine that my rambling has led you to Jude, and you are there. So if you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Let's go to read Jude, the whole uh, book, starting verse 1. The Holy Spirit says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains, under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serves an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. They have committed in such an ungodly ways and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own god-godly passions as these who cause divisions worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, for the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. And amen. May God write this eternal truth on all of our hearts. Does this story sound familiar? Unity Church met for its quarterly business meeting. On the agenda was a motion to use a portion of the church's budget surplus to re-upholster the pews in the sanctuary. Church members could feel the room tense up as a deacon brought the motion to the floor. After all, old man Miller's grandfather built those pews more than 100 years ago. One even had a plaque on the armrest commemorating its installation. He couldn't believe how ungrateful people had become. Frankly, the whole conversation seemed disrespectful. But some younger folks didn't understand all the drama. The church needed to get with the times, they said. Young people wouldn't join the church if it continued to look and smell like a monument to the 1930s. The moderator bravely asked if there was any discussion. What followed was more like a cage fight than a consideration. Nearly 30 minutes later, the pastor's wife was in tears. Church had nearly split between the new pewers and the old pewers, and the motion was tabled. Everyone went home thinking the worst about everyone else. The whole episode smacked of disorder and chaos. Anyone on the outside looking in would have surely asked, who's in charge here? Or does this story sound familiar? Jen had been a member at Connection Church for some years. She recently reconnected with her old high school friend, Heather, who had started coming to church with her. At first, it seemed like Heather became a Christian. She had a clear understanding of the gospel, and her speech was brimming with Christian lingo. She was even baptized and joined the church. She came consistently to a Sunday morning worship and started attending a small group and meeting up with some ladies in the church for a Bible study. But over time, the church started to see her less and less. She stopped attending small group. Her ladies' Bible study couldn't get her to respond to text messages. Eventually, she stopped showing up on Sundays. Before long, Jen and some other members started talking about how the pastor let her slip through the cracks. The pastors, on the other hand, wished more folks would have reached out to Heather As they saw her slipping away, surely someone should have stepped in and pursued her, but who was responsible for that? Who's in charge around here? These two stories are fictional presented by Sam Amati as the introduction of his helpful little book, Who's in Charge of the Church? But I'm willing to bet that you can think of real world scenarios you've seen or been a part of that sound, yes, eerily familiar. Nearly similar to these two. So what would your answer be to the question in a church business meeting gone endlessly long about furniture? Who's in charge of this? Must debate go on and on until everyone has their input heard and new divides are created over something that won't matter in a hundred years, let alone 10,000? What about the other scenario Amati gives? If someone habitually absents themselves from the gathering, who's in charge of pursuing them? If that person is pursued and they continue to spurn the church, who's in charge of overseeing that? Who's responsible there? In this short series we've explored and continue to explore this morning, the topic of church governance, order, or polity. We said from the first week that the biblical model that we find in Scripture is that the local church should be Jesus-ruled, elder-led, deacon-served, and congregational accountable. So in week one, we looked at Jesus-ruled foundation, Last week, we explored the two offices of elders and deacons, and so today, we'll talk about the Congregational Accountable piece. Last week, we saw what our Baptist forebears also established, that in the New Testament, there are two offices in the local church, elder or pastors, and deacons. We saw that elders appear without exception in the plural. And in the New Testament, that the office of deacon was established in order to, there were three things. You remember, spot, meet tangible needs of members in the church protect and promote unity, and support the ministry of the elders. And we saw that elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. That elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does ministry. What we also briefly explored was the question of authority. And we came to this conclusion, yes, based on biblical data. In the local church, Both the gathered congregation and the elders are given derived authority under the headship of Christ. That the elders are to lead the congregation, to make wise and biblical decisions, that the elders don't usurp the congregation's authority, rather they equip the congregation to exercise its authority rightly. And again, you might be asking, why spend all this time talking about polity? Why can't we just order ourselves however we see fit? Why can't we just do it the way we've always done it? Does polity matter anyway? It did to our Baptist forebears who from the beginning have spilled literal blood and ink on this topic. Those whom we stand on the shoulders of believe this topic was so evident in the New Testament that the health and flourishing of a church was in large part dependent on getting it right. Baptists have believed historically that since the Bible isn't silent on the topic of polity, neither should we be. Historian Gregory Wills says this about Baptists and getting polity right. Polity was not merely a matter of obedience. The vitality and growth of the churches depended dependent upon it. Baptists believed that scriptural church government formed an essential foundation for the prosperity of the church for an advanced orthodoxy, evangelism, and discipleship. Correct polity fostered true spirituality. He says Baptists believed that correct polity protected orthodox belief promoted discipleship, separated them from the world and worldliness. They believed Christ commanded his children to order their churches after the apostolic pattern. To fail was disobedience to Christ. They trusted that God would pour down revival in greatest measure on those evangelical churches that ordered themselves after the pattern of the apostolic churches. So when Baptists read the New Testament, they found what's called congregationalism. Have you heard that word before? Congregationalism. This is a mark of Baptist identity. What this means is that every true local church is an outpost of the kingdom of Christ, autonomous, or in other words, not beholden or subordinate to any other ecclesial body. And that the ultimate human authority in the church on earth under Christ's divine authority is the members of the local church gathered who have covenanted together and given evidence of true faith. But the authority from Christ is not vested either in individual members nor in power pockets within the church, you understand. Rather, the authority of the local church is vested in regenerate or believing members as they gather and covenant together, as they're together, but to do what? That's what we're gonna consider this morning. So the question is, does the New Testament tell us what sorts of things the congregation gathered is responsible for? And the answer is yes. And we see three, all right? We're gonna see three major things in the New Testament that the New Testament says the church gathered has authority over. So number one, the church is to guard doctrine. The church is to guard doctrine. In the letter at hand, we see the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, writing to the churches and we observe his greeting. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. And brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And we see a fitting description of the Christian there, don't we? One who is called, one who is loved by God, and who is kept by and for Jesus Christ unto the day of redemption. Further, we see a fitting prayer, that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. In other words, and that they keep increasing these, this mercy and peace and love, and they keep increasing until the end. Then he tells us in verse 3 and 4 why he is writing. Do you see it? And I think this is very interesting. He says in verse 3 that he actually had a different purpose. Did you notice that? He had a different purpose in mind for writing than what he actually wrote about. <laughs> he wanted to write a nice letter about their common salvation. Do you see that? But instead, he's writing to appeal to the audience, and if you underline, highlight in your Bible, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He found it necessary to write to them, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Why, Jude? Because certain people, he tells us, doesn't he? Certain people have crept into the church unawares, who have perverted the grace of God and turned it into license. These are false teachers who have entered the church, and they're trying to lead the church astray into their false teaching, which leads to broken ethics. Because head theology always, always, always flows to the heart. And thus informs how one lives. You can't separate theology from life. They're inseparably linked. One will inform the other, this is undeniable. These people, they have crept in. They're false teachers. Verse 8, they don't rely on the word of God. They rely on dreams and visions. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme. They, verse 12, have infiltrated the love feasts. They take the fellowship. They're swept along. By changing winds of doctrine, they don't bear good fruit because they are, verse 16, grumblers, malcontents, and they follow their own desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Jude is telling the church that they must be on the lookout for bad doctrine and for false teachers and take action to remove them. That's what he's telling them. Truly, they should not have come into the church in the first place. But Jude is gracious by saying they have crept in unnoticed. But now that they're there, the church needs to do something about them and about their destructive teaching. Note again the greeting. This is a letter to who? To the church. This is not a letter to elders only. This is a letter wherein Jude exhorts the whole church to contend, this is active, for the faith that was once for all been delivered to the saints. It's the responsibility of the whole church to guard the gospel, to protect doctrine, and to not allow false teachers to spread their ruinous teachings, which can affect the whole body. It's true, of course, that elders are to protect the flock, they must. They are the ones in charge of what is preached and taught in the church. They are too, like Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, protect the church. He knew false, fierce wolves would come in among them and they wouldn't spare the flock. Therefore, the elders, he said, you must be alert. So elders should indeed protect the church from false doctrine. However, the charge given repeatedly in the New Testament to watch for false teachers is given to the churches. The buck stops with them. You think about it, every single letter in the New Testament, except for the pastoral epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were written to who? Local churches, everyone. And in those letters, there's a repeated call, yes, to guard doctrine, to not be taken in by false teaching. And we see that here in Jude, or think of Galatians 1. Paul says in church in Galatia, you deserted the gospel. I gave you the gospel, you deserted it. And he says, if anyone comes to you and gives another gospel than the one that I gave you at first, that person's teaching is a false gospel and it should be rejected and they should be accursed. He says, even if I come to you with a different gospel, reject it. Even if an angel comes with a different gospel, reject it. What's he saying? He's saying that they have a responsibility, that local church in Galatia, have a responsibility for knowing the gospel to the point that they could reject and spot counterfeits. Who's supposed to do that? Again, in Galatians, the whole church is being addressed because the whole church who has the responsibility to guard the gospel and reject false teacher, Paul holds the whole congregation accountable for what it is taught. If false teaching is allowed to take root in the church, whose fault is it? The whole congregation. Says Mark Dever, Paul appealed to these Galatian Christians and made it quite clear. Not only were they competent to sit in judgment of a message presented as the gospel, but they were required to do so. Anytime someone came and presented something else and called it the gospel, the congregation would have to make a decision. They had an inescapable duty to judge even those who claimed to be apostles. Or think of 2 Timothy. You remember 2 Timothy when Paul says that there will come a time, you know this verse, people will come into the church. and They won't endure sound doctrine anymore. Wanting to have their ears tickled, what will they do? Accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. He says that there will be some churches who won't stand sound doctrine. They don't want it. And they'll collect for themselves teachers who say what they want to hear. It will thus be on the congregation. They will be the ones who are responsible for what is taught among them because the buck of false teaching stops with them. And so, you, my friend, do you realize that you are responsible for what you hear taught in this church? (coughs) This means you must have discerning ears, it means that you must have a foundation of good theology which will help you spot the bad. And make no mistake, my friend, you are a theologian. You sit there and think, I'm no theologian. Yes, you are. Every single person has a theology. The question is, will you be intentional about having a theology that has, was once for all handed down to the saints? Or will you have a theology that tickles your ears? The question is, Will your theology be the sound doctrine that has been handed down to us through the ages? Or a bad theology that fits more into what you want and would prefer the word to say? Commit yourself to good theology, friend. If it is your responsibility to guard the gospel, then you must know what's right, yes? How can you spot and rebuke and reject bad doctrine if you don't know good doctrine? You must know the faith that has been handed down if you're going to spot the counterfeits. False teaching is not as easy to detect as one might think. Rarely do false teachers come out and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. Here, have this counterfeit gospel. No, they dress it up so that you'll be taken in by their deception. And they cloak it in language of spirituality. They even use the word and twist it because false teachers like their father, the devil, are crafty. I remember hearing a story, I think I told it to you before, from Chuck Swindoll. He, he said uh, he used to tell the time when his friends ate dog food. His friends visited this wealthy physician's home in Miami for a party. and They, they didn't know they were being served dog food. Okay, See, what happened was uh, the food that they were given was served on this little cracker with a wedge of imported cheese, that had bacon and olive topped with a sliver of pimento. So you couldn't tell. There was dog food in there. Who would serve dog food to these people? It it wasn't done by an enemy, but by a friend, one of their friends who had just graduated from gourmet cooking class, and they decided, I need to put my newfound skills to the test to see how good I am. She wanted to see how good she was. And one by one, the people ate up the dressed-up dog food crackers, none the wiser, until they were all gone. And only after they had all eaten them, only then did she say, what they actually had eaten. That's what false teachers do. They serve counterfeit food. Nothing better than d- dog food. But they mask it. Why didn't no one at the party notice? Because they didn't have a discerning palate. Can you imagine if Gordon Ramsay was there? My man would know. I need to say some words that aren't fit for me to say from this pulpit, okay? He'd know it was dog food, Right? Why would he he be able to tell? Because he has a discerning, refined palate. If you cultivate good theology drawn from the whole counsel of God, you will more and more be able to tell when something false is being taught. And indeed, that is one of the major responsibilities given to the church, given to you in the New Testament. A second area over which the congregation has authority is related to the first. They have a responsibility to elect qualified men to the biblical offices of elders and deacons. They have a responsibility to elect qualified men to the biblical offices of elders and deacons. So they have a a, a responsibility to elect people to the offices in the church. In in, In warning the early church of the infiltration of false teachers, Jude desires for them to remove such men from among them. Since the church has a responsibility over doctrine, they have a responsibility to elect and, if necessary, remove leaders depending on if they're teaching and leading in accordance with the word. Last week, we saw an example of the church in Jerusalem electing the very first deacons, didn't we? You remember the scene, the growing church found themselves in a precarious position wherein... Some of the widows were being neglected in a daily distribution, which threatened to divide the early church. The apostles thus got together and they said, it's not right that we neglect the word of God to serve tables, but it's not right either for widows to go without food. So they turned to the church and they said, they told the church, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, who you, we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the apostles gave the instructions to the church, right? And they said, here are the qualifications. They must be wise, spirit-filled, and of good repute. And the church brought forth seven men to the apostles and said, in essence, here are seven guys that we believe fit your qualifications. Now we see the apostles affirming the church's choice and laying their hands on them. Now, in the New Testament, We see the apostles and other leaders appointing elders in new churches, don't we? Which makes sense, since the churches were just being established. In Acts 20, Paul gives instructions to the Ephesian elders. In Titus 1, Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in every town, as I direct you. So while the early church was planting churches across the empire, we see the apostles having a hand in the appointment of these offices. However, as you move through the first century and into the second, the apostles are gone, we see the now-established churches electing elders and deacons themselves. In the Didache, for example, which is the earliest manual for the church that exists, the instructions are given that the churches should elect for themselves bishops or elders and deacons who are worthy of the Lord, men who are meek, not lovers of money, truthful, and proved. So even though we don't don't have apostles today, right? We don't have apostles today appointing these offices— we still must select elders and deacons according to apostolic instructions. In other words, each local congregation has a responsibility to elect elders and deacons, but they must do it according to what? The instructions of the apostles. Do you see? We're not left in the dark, praise God, as to what qualifies one to be either an elder or a deacon. We have Acts 6 telling us deacons should be men of good repute and wise and full of the Holy Spirit. We see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the qualifications for elders and deacons. We don't have to make them up. We don't have to think up qualifications. We have them given to us, handed to us, in the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And the qualifications, if you notice, you read them, they're mostly character-driven, aren't they? And except for the qualifications for elders that they must be able to teach, All the qualifications are things all Christians are told to pursue throughout the New Testament. Above reproach, one woman, man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach in the case of elders only, not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, not addicted to much wine, managing their own household well, not double-tongued. Now you notice what's missing from this list. These are things... There, there are things not given as qualifications for either office that we might typically think of when we are selecting and electing elders or deacons. In the context of pragmatism and adoption of corporate business models, we, we've asked not do they fit the biblical qualifications, but are they good at business? You guys see that in the qualification list? Are they financially astute? Do they make good investments? Have they been at the church forever? Are they a nice fella? Are they a good old boy? Are they a dynamic speaker? Will they represent my group and interests well? Do you see any of that in the qualifications for elder or deacon? See, Paul doesn't say any of that, does he? He isn't worried about those things. He's concerned with character, not worldly performance or pragmatic astuteness. It doesn't matter how nice a fella is or how long a deacon candidate has been at the church if he's double-tongued or divisive. It doesn't matter how good at speaking a pastor candidate is if he has used his position to prey on vulnerable sheep. One of the signs of thinking wrongly on these offices and the church on a whole that I have seen is when people ask, will this person represent me and my group? Have you seen that? I bet you have. Will they represent me and my group and our cause? That is a sign of an inherently sick church. Because it begins with the thought that the church isn't one body, but separate pockets of interest groups. It isn't thus about what's good for the whole body, but what's good for our little churches within the bigger one. I don't have to tell you that it's election season, do I? Signs and ads are everywhere. Are you guys sick of them? God man. My, me and my kids will be, my kids will be watching YouTube videos on TV. And, you know, ads play between the videos. And the political ones come on, and you can't skip them. Do you know that? You know, after like five seconds, you'll be able to skip most ads? Not the political ones. And, and uh, it's like we're being collectively punished. I've had Auggie. He comes up, and he's watching his dinosaur video. You know, it's interrupted by some politician talking about who knows what. And he goes, Daddy, skip the ad. And I go, I can't. It won't let me. And he go, Daddy, skip the ad. And I'll go, my man, I, I wish I could. I can't skip it. And he'll, he'll nod and he'll be like, you can't skip the ad? And I'll go, I now you're getting it. And then he's like, Daddy, skip the ad. I'm like, and then after this infernal exchange, that, it's over, right? <laughs> the ad's over. But, uh, you know, he just wants to get back to his dinosaurs. He doesn't care about what the politician has to say. And I'm with him, <laughs> you know. I'd, I'd rather watch dinosaurs too. Actually, I'd almost rather watch anything else. But what do those ads say? You know, they're basically all the same, aren't they? Vote for me because I represent your interests in whatever office I'm running for. It's not really about qualifications or character because they know the voters don't care much about that. They just want to, they, they just want to know if the candidate will represent their interests. Is that not true? That's what they appeal to in these ads. Further, there isn't even a pretense anymore that they'll represent all of their constituents, right? They, they just want to represent their party and their interests. And that's why we vote for them. Yes, they'll, well, you'll vote for the person you feel like will represent your interests and your concerns. The church should be different. It shouldn't resemble the world. Where inside you find people divided into weird interest groups whose main concern is their own cause and comfort and preferences. The whole church is united by the gospel. And the only thing they're advocating for is the glory of Christ under the headship of Christ and his authority. They, they thus are looking for, do you see why it's an inherent sickness? They are thus looking for representatives to a spiritual Congress-like entity. They're electing men who fit the qualifications as given by the apostles who will represent and serve them as a whole not as separate little entities within the larger one. No church could be healthy with that approach and posture. Don't you see? It is the church's responsibility to elect and if necessary, remove elders and deacons in accordance with scripture, because in accordance with scripture is the extent of their authority. Remember all the responsibility and authority given to the church gathered are carried out under the headship of Christ. And what Christ has done is empowered and authorized his apostles who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and have handed the words of the New Testament to guide and direct us because it is the Bible alone that is sufficient for faith and practice. So just as apostles oversaw the selections that the early church made in Acts 6, so we have a responsibility to rely on their enduring word to guide us in the task of electing elders and deacons. But third third thing we see congregation have authority over is membership and discipline. Number three, membership and discipline. The members of a church are responsible for the other members of the church for care, oversight, discipline, growth, and accountability. Jump down in Jude to verse 17. I want to read verses 17 through 23 again, okay? Look what it says. Jude 1, 17, but you must must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But look at this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. See, he says that Jesus and his apostles had predicted the very thing that they were facing. That scoffers and people using grace as an excuse to sin and disobey. And people who cause division and people who don't have the spirit will come in and they'll try to destroy the church. But what does he say? But you, beloved, must be different than them. You must build yourselves up in your most holy faith. You must pray in the spirit. Then look at this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Show others mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Look again, every single time you see the word you, Y-O-U, or one of its derivatives like yourselves, in any form, in 17 to 23, it's in the plural. So if you read, keep yourselves in the most holy faith and think I need to keep myself personally in my personal holy faith in sort of an individualistic kind of way, you'd be missing what Jude is really saying. He's saying that to be kept in the most holy faith that we share. Remember, the one that was delivered once for all is a community project. He says, you are to build one another up You are to keep one another in the love of God. You are to wait together for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then what does it say? You see this sort of escalating picture, right? You have one who doubts, then one who is dabbling in the fire, and then one who is straight up headed down the wrong path. But all of them are the responsibility of the church. Don't you see it? to respond in varying intensities. Those who doubt should be comforted with mercy and understanding. But those who have one foot in the fire, what's the picture? They should be snatched away. They they should be pulled back urgently. But the one who is fully devoting themselves to sin and not walking at all in the way of the Lord, those you must be careful that you don't get taken in by the same sins and temptation. You go after them, but you do it with fear, hating even the garment Staying by the flesh, don't you see? The responsibility for one another is given to the church. Church has authority over membership of the church because with membership, the church is declaring, as far as we could tell, this person is a Christian pursuing obedience and faithfulness, and the church thus takes responsibility for their oversight and care as a whole. This is made explicit in Matthew eighteen fifteen through 20, where the Lord says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refused to listen to them, tell it to, do you remember? The church. Tell it to the church. And if you refuse to listen to even the church, let him be as you, a Gentile, and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You see, in that text, we see the Lord believes that there should be a difference between who is in the church and who is out. He believes that there should be a line between the church and the world that is clearly defined. And when this process of pursuit of an erring brother or sister reaches pinnacle, Jesus doesn't say to tell it to the elders or deacons, does he? He says, tell it to the church. The church is the final earthly court of appeals. It is then that the church gathered, renders a judgment which isn't determining if the offender is a Christian or not. No one could do that but Christ. The church is simply stating whether or not they can affirm based on available evidence if this person is striving to follow the Lord. We see a similar thing happen in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2.6 where the church gives majority consent and renders judgment together. The church guards the membership of the church in both affirming that they believe them to be Christians and in helping them walk faithfully in the Lord. See, Jesus has given the keys. Do you realize this? Jesus has given the keys to the kingdom to only one entity, the church. Only one. And the binding and loosing that a church does is valid insofar as it is biblical. Biblical. Because the church does not invent or create or decide what the church should be and do. Jesus does, don't you see? John Lehman illustrates it helpfully, I think, like this. He says, think of a judge. A judge does not make the law. He or she interprets it. Then based on that interpretation, a judge does not make a person actually innocent or guilty, but when they pound the gavel and declare guilty or not guilty, the whole legal system will swing in action and treat the person as such. A judge on the bench and a law professor in the classroom might use the exact same words when interpreting a law or offering their judgment of a case, but a judge's judgment binds. The words guilty, or I pronounce you a man and wife, are effectual because they are backed up by the authority of a government. They enact something. He says this, similarly, by virtue of the keys of the kingdom, churches don't make the gospel, nor do they make people Christians but they possess an authority the individual Christian does not possess. The ability to represent the kingdom of Christ in formally recognizing people as members of the church or in removing them. They formally represent Christ in heaven. So do you realize when a church accepts someone into membership, they're not making someone a Christian, (laughs) right? Rather, they're saying, as far as we could tell, you are someone who has given allegiance to Jesus, and we thus... Take responsibility for your faithful following as you too submit to the authority of the church. Is that not an awesome responsibility that the church has? Russell Moore says this, our, our vote for president is less important than our vote to receive new members for baptism into our churches. A president is term limited, and for that matter, so is the United States and every other nation. The reception of members into the church, however, marks out the future kings and queens of the universe. Our church membership roles say to the people on them and to the outside world, these are those we believe will inherit the universe as joint heirs with Christ. This means then that the church as a whole is responsible for every person they retain on the membership roles. Why? Because these roles are saying to the person, to the church and the world and heaven that they believe each and every one of those people are Christians based on available evidence and that they are pursuing faithfulness in the Lord. Whose responsibility is that? The whole church. Because the whole church and the whole church alone are the ones who have the authority to accept and remove members, as well as to pursue errant and discipline those in ongoing unrepentant sin with an eye towards restoration and repentance. So the growth and health and care of the members of the church rests primarily where? in the members of the church. Our faith was designed to be lived in community that we've covenanted together in membership, and thus they looked after us as we look after them. Don't you see? That's the authority, that's the responsibility that you have. This is why there are over 51 another commands in the New Testament. Things like love one another, live in harmony with one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, forgive one another, comfort one another, care for one another, encourage one another, care for one another, and on and on we could go. All of those are incoherent without being an active member of a local church. And all of those remind us that the authority the church has over its members, not in a negative sort of way, but in a positive way that looks after one another and takes responsibility to see to it that they will see the day of redemption too. See, we live in such an autonomous, individualistic society that we neither feel obligated to any group nor want to submit to the care of any group nor want to be responsible for anyone without the freedom to pull the ripcord and bail whenever it gets too uncomfortable. Is that not our culture? But nothing can be further from Scripture's call on the Christian. The people that infiltrated the churches Jude was writing to were people who said, I have grace. I can sin as much as I want, praise God. And Jude is saying, get them out of there. They have turned grace into license, which bastardizes the gospel. And we too look at people in the church who we've covenanted with and we see them in destructive sin or we see them abandon the fellowship and we go, well, they should live their lives however they want. And Who who am I to tell them anything different anyway? That's an uncaring posture as they come. Who are you? You're someone charged with the care and oversight of your fellow believers. Don't you see? Like truly, we don't take this posture anywhere else, do we? Do you watch your kid or grandkid do something that will hurt them and say, who am I to correct them? Do you think it's fine that Timmy is running into traffic? It's fine that he's trying to stick a fork in the socket. It's fine he's trying to jump off the top bunk. It's fine that he wants to go pet that wild snake. It's fine that he wants to eat that tiny piece of Lego. He's not under law, but under grace. I don't want to harsh his mellow. Do you do that? Of course not. You stop them because you care about them. You have a responsibility for their care and growth. So it is with the church. You have been given the keys to the kingdom. You can bind and loose. You see one another with love and devotion so that if a brother or sister is doubting, you could sit next to them and point them to Jesus. When they're putting their toe in the fire, you can snatch them out. When they're fully devoting themselves to sin, you can come to them and call them back, reminding them of the beauty of Christ, even as you do so in fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we think of authority of members in the church. We must stop thinking about the ability to call the shots when it comes to music and Sunday school and programs and preferences and desires. Instead, We should think of authority rightly is to think of responsibilities over doctrine, electing biblical offices, and helping one another walk faithfully. Don't you see that this topic of polity is really about health and obedience and discipleship. When everyone knows their job and takes their responsibility seriously and sees that the task has been given by Christ who rules the church, how can a church not flourish? In a biblical party, you'll have accountability and oversight. You'll have mutual care and submission. You'll have growth and faithfulness. But they aren't automatic. You must see what the Word says, submit to it, and continually contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We don't need, friend, new methods, new schemes, new ideas, or new doctrines. We need the 2,000-year-old faith delivered once for all. It's a delivered faith. Not one we must create or control, but rather steward what we've been handed. Now you remember the two cases I presented to you in Amadi's book at the beginning? What are the answers? What are the answers to who's in charge here in those cases? At Unity Baptist Church, they were fighting over whether to reupholster the pews. Remember, One group wanted to honor the past, another one to look towards the future. Well, does any of this actually affect the church's membership, discipline and doctrine? Does it? (laughs) Not really, right? The church's furniture doesn't hinder the congregation's ability to receive new members into the church or care for the member's spiritual well-being, and it certainly doesn't affect the church's gospel doctrine. So in the end, it's just a matter of wisdom. A decision best left to the elders or to someone they delegate to care for that matter, and the church should follow their lead. The elders might make a decision you would not have made, but you have to trust that they're concerned about the whole church making the best decision they can and perhaps working with some information you don't have. What about Connection Church? Heather at Connection Church, she started well, but after a season, she slipped through the cracks. Who should have gone after her? After that last 15-minute rant, you don't know? The church, the members. The member fueled by the regular teaching of the elders should have pursued her. They should have called her back, reminding her that true Christians don't forsake the assembly, and they should have lovingly called her to repent in order to bring her back into the fold. Sam Amati says this, So often, disunity emerges from folks trying to put their hands into matters they don't really belong to them. grabs for power, usually create, fights for power. But when everyone knows their job description and who is responsible for what, that we have a much better shot at preserving the unity of the church. That's why polity matters. And all of it is a matter of pursuing obedience and faithfulness under Christ, who is the founder, husband, ruler, and head. He is a God who speaks and rules. And so we, ha- we, we neither have to nor have the authority to order anything for us or according to our whims and whimsies. John Hammett says, since the church is God's creation... It must be ordered and operated according to his instructions. As the people of God, the church is God-called, God-owned, God-related, and shaped in every way by its relationship with God. This means that church membership cannot be a purely human arrangement with humans at liberty to shape it as they desire. Membership in God's people can only be by God's standard. All of it, everything about the church, must have the aim of Christ's centrality, Christ's glory, Christ's fame, according to Christ's standards. And so you see Jude end his letter with this beautiful doxology, giving all praise to Jesus, remind us to whom we owe everything and for whom we exist as individuals and as a church. We are frail. We are weak. We get things wrong sometimes. But if we pursue His way, if faithfulness is what we pursue, then we can rest knowing that it'll all work out in the end because it means we're relying on he who is able to keep us from stumbling. He who will present his church without spot or wrinkle, blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy. And so we make our prayer and our praise to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion, authority in the church, in our lives, in the world, in the universe, before all time and now and forever.